Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you. So to start, can you give us the rundown on the San Damiano project? When did the city of Monona purchase the land and for what reason? Well, the property was previously owned by a religious group and they wanted to sell it and they were making plans to demolish the property. And when they didn't get permission from the Landmarks Commission, the city, I believe, made an offer to buy it. I think it was like 2021, 22. So it hasn't been that long. And so they bought the property, I think, for $10 million. And so just to clarify, part of the appeal of this property was that it's waterfront, something that the city of Monona has very little of. Could you explain that? Well, most of the lakefront property on Lake Monona, not just in Monona, but Madison Monona has been very strongly developed or very densely developed with houses and private property. So this is one of the few uninterrupted shorelines, I think 1,500 feet of shoreline that has not been closed off, you know, and so now that it's in public ownership, it's available for people to use as an open space. So it is a rarity. It was the first house, I think, on Lake Monona, at least in Monona, but now it's one of the last undeveloped shorelines on Lake Monona. Just to clarify, this would be sort of like a a city park that they're designating it as this property? Yeah, I don't think anything's official. I don't think it's been declared officially as a city park, but it is open to the public. And I think people have started to use it for quiet contemplation. I think that was one of the values people really spoke up, that it's a quiet place, contemplative place. My understanding is that the San Damiano project ultimately motivated you to get into local politics. Is that accurate? You know, I don't know if that's entirely true, but, you know, one did follow the other. So there might have been a natural progression there. But yeah, I did get more and more involved and made the leap from one to the other. But I don't know if they were directly connected, but one definitely led into the other. Late last month, the city released its master plan for the site. What details do they have ironed out right now? I think the plan basically outlines existing conditions, They did a wind and water analysis. They did a tree inventory. They sketched out in very broad terms, you know, what the Frank Alice House could be used for. So it's a very summary approach. It's a very high-level approach, and it doesn't really make any strong recommendations that I can see either way. It leaves kind of a open question as to what to do at the Frank Alice House and, in general, how to develop or not develop the property. It leaves more up for further analysis than anything else. And so you pointed out that the Frank Alice House is perhaps one of the oldest houses on the shoreline, making it a historic site. Can you tell us more about its history and then its placement within the natural area of the property? Well, it's a 10-acre site. And the house is kind of in the southwest corner of the property, fairly close to the shoreline. It's a large house. It's several thousand square feet, three stories. The third story was a ballroom. It was built by Frank Alice, who was the son of the original Alice of Alice Chalmers. 
this was his kind of gentleman farmer home. It wasn't his main home. He lived in Milwaukee. Had he lived longer, I think he might have been a real stalwart of the progressive farmer, quote-unquote. But that was cut short. Then it was sold to various individuals. A deer lived there for a while. And then I think um, a pair of sisters owned it who eventually gave it to a religious order who then lived and used the property up until the point it became owned by the city of Monona. Has it been officially designated as a historic site? It is a city of Monona landmark. So it is covered by the city's historic preservation ordinance. So the Landmarks Commission will have some authority over any exterior changes or if the property is to be demolished. But it has not yet been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And I think that's something that is possible. It would take a certain amount of effort to make a few key changes in the exterior of the property. There's some artificial siding on the exterior of the property that would need to be removed. That and a couple other things might be done before applying for the National Register status. If it does become listed on the National Register, it would then be eligible for some historic preservation tax credits. And if those could be applied to any project there that could make a very big difference in the financial feasibility of rehabilitating the property. You touched on this earlier, but as of right now, the master plan does not determine whether or not the Frank Alice House would be preserved or leveled for a new property to be built. Can you sort of explain the difference between the two in terms of the expenses? You mentioned there might be some federal funding if it's officially recognized as a historical site. But right now, what is the price difference between the two approaches to the project? I don't know if that's been fully analyzed. I think some level of pro forma analysis has to be made, and you have to look at what the costs would be for one versus the other. That, I think, probably should be the next best step, is to do a financial feasibility study for preserving it or not. Until we really get a look at the economics of preservation versus demolition, Uh, I don't know if we'll really be able to make an informed decision on what to do with the house. You mentioned the siding, that kind of thing. What are some other rehab projects that would have to be done to preserve the house? Well, I think it's mostly these cosmetic issues. I think there's like an asbestos siding that's on the house. But luckily, all the clabbered, the original wooden clabbered, is all in place. So if we took off that siding, which I don't think has to cost a lot of money, we could see what kind of shape the clabbered siding is underneath. And at that point, we could kind of take a snapshot and talk to the State Historical Society and says, is this now eligible for the National Register? If not, then you might want to take the next step, which would be to restore the front entry. I think it was in the 1940s or so that the religious order that lived there extended the front entry and added an addition right in the center of the house. And if that could be reversed and we could restore the entry, we could then ask the State Historical Society, is it now eligible? And I think after those two major rehab projects, you would have, I think, a very good shot at listing the property on the National Register. 
you mentioned earlier before we started recording that you noticed some errors in the master plan that was released. Can you share a couple of examples? Well, they talk at one point where if the house was to be listed on the National Register, they'd have to establish or be clear that the period of significance coincides with the lifetime of Frank Alice. And I think basically the house would not be eligible for being associated with Frank Alice. It would be eligible because it's a good representative example of a type of architecture. And so this is a Georgian revival styled house. And if some of those changes were made that I was outlining before, then the period of significance would be the date of construction. It wouldn't be the lifetime of Frank Alice. So I think that was a bit of an error. Also, it said if the house was listed on the National Register, if there were any federal monies, it would need to be reviewed by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. I think I would have worded that a little differently. I would have said it needs to be undergo a, a Section 106 review, which may or may not involve the Advisory Council. Generally, it just involves the State Historical Society. There again, it's just a bit of a miswording of what the review process would be if there was any federal money involved. So those were some of the things I noticed. So you've sort of walked us through your perspective on why the Frank Alice House should be preserved, but some have said it's better to replace the house entirely. Have they provided any explanation as to why that would be better from their perspective? Well, I think that goes back to the cost analysis. I mean, replaced in what sense? I mean, I don't think you could build a house like that with those materials today. If you ever went in the basement, there are these huge timbers, you know, like 80-inch square, and uh, they're in as good condition now as they were in 1896. That house is overbuilt, and structurally, it's in wonderful condition. So the bones of the house are excellent. Some of the primary spaces on the first floor are high style and beautiful and could function wonderfully for all kinds of small events. If you would try to recreate in size and scale and detail what there's now, it would cost you five times the amount it would cost to rehab. I'm fairly certain. If you compare apples with apples, you know, this is a bargain. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Richard. Yeah, you're welcome.